Okay. Everybody, for the new faces, my name is Charles Small. I'm the director of INGAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy. And today, it's an honor to invite, uh, to, invite to uh, welcome uh, Benny Weinthal, who's uh, an old friend and colleague, and I guess uh, comrade in the struggle. I met Benny in Berlin ten years ago, nine years ago, when we were dealing with issues of Iran. And, um, and the nuclear weapons program and radical Islam and, and the like um, was for a Stop the Bomb conference that I originally went to Berlin nine years ago. So it's great to have Benny uh, back. He visited us. He spoke at Yale uh, for our program, and now he's back here. And although it's a small group, it's, I think, to Benny's credit, I don't think, I know it's to Benny's credit, that there's sort of this eclectic group of people of, um, I'm sure you don't all know each other, but there's sort of professional, international, legal people here. There's union organizers here. There's Jewish communal leaders that are here, uh, leading journalists and diplomats in this crowd. Uh, and it's the fact uh, that this, the, the caliber of the people here, who I know many of you don't know each other, it's all because you follow and know of Benny's very important work. Benny is, um, as you all know, a Jerusalem Post correspondent uh, for European Affairs. He's based in Berlin. He's also the Berlin-based fellow for the Foundation of the Defense of Democracy. Benny reports on European-Israeli relations, contemporary anti-Semitism, and the threat of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. He writes uh, on European anti-Semitism and has appeared, his writings have appeared uh, in Foreign Policy, the National Review Online, Haaretz, uh, Idiot, um, Weinet, uh, as recently Fox News. He's also appeared on BBC Radio to discuss the contemporary issues of German anti-Semitism. Benny's originally from here in the New York area. He graduated from NYU where he received a BA in philosophy, and then he went on to earn a master's degree in uh, philosophy in European culture and literature from Cambridge University. So it's really uh, a great pleasure to welcome Benny back to this campus. Some of the audience members uh, asked me to extend my talk beyond 30 minutes to about four hours. <laughs> so we're going to order pizzas and there'll be food until, um, I guess, what, 9, 30, 10. Um, I know it's an exciting topic. It'll be wide awake. Um, let me start by um, first thanking Charles for the invitation to speak this evening. Um, his institute um, is devoted, um, open quote, fighting anti-Semitism on the battlefield of ideas, close quote. And it's crucially needed right now in playing a very important role in uh, countering the, the growing uh, tolerance and promotion of anti-Semitism in many parts of the world. So Charles, it's a tribute to you. You've accomplished a great deal, and the Institute is still in its uh, nascent phase. And I'd also like to thank the staff members who have helped put this talk together, Jenny Pigot, Downstairs, she's downstairs, coming. Downstairs, and Jasmine Nazarene for their tireless work and outreach and helping me get an obsolete projector <laughs> to show cartoons because I'm still mechanically inept when it comes to PowerPoint presentations. Um, well, let me delve into this. I'm going to go through just a few phases of what's happening in Europe, um, and I'll try to keep this to, I guess, 20, 30 minutes. And 
there's there's a couple sentences that uh, capture my experience in Europe over the last uh, 13 years or so in terms of reporting on um, modern anti-Semites in Europe and anti-Semitism um, across the continent. And there's a statement, um, many of you have probably heard it from an Israeli psychoanalyst, uh, Zevi Rex, who once said, um, the Germans will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. He meant, he meant it with biting sarcasm and, and irony, but um, again, the Germans will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. And journalists love colorful you know, statements or comments, and this is one of those uh, comments that appears in many newspaper articles because it zooms in on a, on a very important topic. Um, that is the, the guilt that, that was formed in response to the Holocaust and how Europeans are dealing with this, or in this case, Germans. I would argue that the this notion of um, guilt-based anti-Semitism has now spread across the continent. You have a pan-European epidemic where the Europeans, uh, in this case, will never forgive the Israelis for Auschwitz. I think it's moved away from the Jews in that sense because Europeans don't have problems with Jews uh, returning to Europe. At least look at the case of Spain offering passports to Israelis who somehow you know have Spanish ancestry. Um, but the problem is with Israel and the notion of um, the notion of the Jew has been replaced by Israel. This is nothing really new. The French historian, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, an anti-Semitism expert, Leon Polikov, said um, a while back that Israel has now become the collective Jew among the nations. Um, we see that um, at the UN where um, there's a bottomless level of resolutions targeting Israel while um, you know, countries that are, are closed societies are, are rarely um, put in the spotlight. So there's a, there's a trend I'd like to show at this point in terms of um, anti-Semitic cartoons and, and how this has been gaining traction. Um, there's been a number of cartoons that I'm dealing mainly with the German and British media right now, but most of my talk will just cover uh, continental Europe. But I think these cartoons capture, um, most of them deal with Israel, capture an interesting trend. Um, from my perspective, um, and I'm not an academic, but what, what I've noticed as a journalist is um, the many, many Europeans can't directly stoke anti-Semitism, at least it's a very crude form, so they do indirectly what they can do directly. Cartoons is one area where you have more latitude to show that, and also the, the arts pages of newspapers. The political pages, for example, in Germany, the political um, sections of reporting are generally restrained. But the shift has been to the arts pages where it's wide open in terms of attacking Jews and Israel. So let me start with cartoon number one. While they're, while they're putting together the um, projector. The first cartoon, and some of you may have heard about it, appeared in a newspaper called the Süddeutsche Zeitung, the um, southern German paper. That's how it's translated. It's in Munich. It's the largest broadsheet in, in Germany. And it, it actually has a joint publishing relationship with the New York Times. They publish um, once a week. This paper has had a, a peculiar um, obsession with Israel and Jews over the last year. And they published a cartoon um, just a few, I think about four or five weeks ago, showing Mark Zuckerberg as an octopus. 
Do any folks here remember that? Okay. And that's the cartoon. Hopefully, we can get on the uh, on the screen. <coughs> Wait a couple minutes. Well, let me then plunge forward until we get the cartoon up. Um, as I mentioned, my, my departure point for this talk is going to be mainly the period of European anti-Semitism. Okay, we have it. it disappeared. There we go. Okay, that was the cartoon that you can see after Facebook purchased um, what apps? Is that what it's called? For what was it, 19 million? Um, this uh, this cartoon appeared in this in the Zoo Deutsche. Mark Zuckerberg, as you can see, the nose is is clearly hooked. Uh, he doesn't have a hooked nose. Um, his his lips are are created to be very fleshy, almost you know about to devour someone. Um, the the you can almost see the this attempt to make side curls. Um, in a, you know, as a as a Hasidic Jew. And then, of course, the, the tentacles, which are, are engulfing, you know, all the computer systems in the world. Um, and that, that image, if, if you recall, was ubiquitous during the Hitler movement. Um, and when, I, when I first saw this, you know, it, you know, I just did some simple searches because I remember seeing these types of cartoons in, in uh, Nazi um, <coughs> newspapers in the 30s. Um, this cartoon was published in one of the editions, and then someone got smart in the, the editorial office, and they scrambled to withdraw it, and, but it got out, and then a, a second edition appeared, and they just showed uh, a, a blank list, a blank face. You don't see Mark Zuckerberg, but you see the octopus. This was called Octopus Zuckerberg, and then they published another one, Octopus Facebook, to try to uh, rope in the anti-Semitism at that point. But it was out, and the story got a lot of traction. Now let's go to number two. This cartoon, the same paper, appeared last um, year in the Zoo Deutsch again. This shows Israel as a demonic monster who's devouring, uh, this is a German woman bringing uh, him food, who's devouring um, German food and the food symbolizes weapons. Because Israel, as many of you know, supplies uh, uh, Second strike dolphin submarines to um, or Germany provides second strike dolphin submarines to Israel. Israel buys them. Some of them are at reduced rates, but again, the image of this this monster with horns um, devouring Germany is how the, this the largest broadsheet in in um, Germany portrayed Israel. Cartoon number three. Um, this is from the Badische Zeitung. This is in Baden-Württemberg, which is a southwestern, southwestern German state. Um, for whatever reason, these cartoons keep surfacing in these southern German states. Um, this shows that this took place during the peace talks, uh, the Iran talks in November. So you see the sign says Genf, that means Geneva. The sign says underneath Adam Iran Atomic Solution for the nu nuclear talks that were signed in, I think, on the 24th. Um, and that's Netanyahu on the right, on a mobile saying, I need 
uh, uh, pigeon poison and snake poison. And you can see his briefcase, it says Net and Alum Company, and the snail, which is I think on the pigeon, is the symbol of peace. So he's calling to get poison to poison the peace process, which according to at least the number of scholars I've spoken to conjures up this notion of Jews, you know, poisoning the wells during the medieval period and that anti-Semitic trope. Um, this this newspaper actually um, uh, went to great lengths to defend the cartoon and 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 wrote me responses that it's not anti-Semitic because it's only um, depicting uh, the peace process. It was also published. I'm sorry, it was published um, before they actually reached an agreement, but during that phase, that, hot, that hot period of talks in Geneva, it was published on the Pogrom Day in Germany, 1938, November, uh, in early November, November 8th. Um, they said that it was pure coincidence. Um, so number four, again, um, you can, you'll see this is from the... Um, this is from the Stuttgarter Zeitung, and in, in also in Baden-Württemberg. Um, these are regional papers, but in many ways they're, they're, they reach audiences that generally wouldn't be reached by the large newspapers, and they can influence public opinion. It shows Netanyahu, again, with uh, a poison container that says settlement construction, and he's pouring on a piece of bread that would be used to poison a pigeon. And below it says, um, give me more pigeon poison. Again, Netanyahu is the poisoner of the peace process. Um, and this particular paper actually did apologize because they used the, um, the, um, uh, a song from a German writer, German Jewish writer, this uh, give me more um, pigeon poison was a, a song and her, his daughter complained bitterly that this anti-Semitism and he didn't have the right to use it, her father's song. So they, they sort of apologized because they used the song, not really because of the, the anti-Semitic trope. Then number five, this just, this is from the British Economist. Um, many of you may have seen this, it's got a lot of traction in the, uh, the media because it's an English publication with a, with a very good reputation. Shows um, Obama on the left, of course, chained to the U.S. Congress with the Stars of David, uh, on the symbol suggesting that the U.S. Congress and U.S. foreign policy is controlled by uh, Jews. To the right is uh, Hassan Rouhani, Iran's president, uh, and suggesting that he's controlled by you know, hardliners who are burning the American flag or being pulled back, not even controlled. But uh, you can even see the difference in. in and the level of strength that he's sort of being tugged away where Obama's chained to American Jewish power. Um, it's a very powerful image. The Economist actually did, um, I think, pull down the cartoon. It was, it was a lot of back and forth. Didn't apologize, but said, um, you know, something along the lines of that this could have sent a message that we didn't want to intend, or uh, they did publish a correction on the website. So there was some, um, some movement to, to try to diffuse the, the criticism. Thanks. There's scores of other cartoons we can go through, but um, you, you get the gist that, with the exception of the Zuckerberg cartoon, um, which was unusual, um, because this classic form of anti-Semitism is sort of, it's, it's not front and center in, in the thinking of, of most Europeans. Um, it's usually mixed, when it is, and it's mixed with, 
with um, turning Israel into a human punching bag. So I'm going to cover, as I mentioned, the period of 2008, um, really the start of Operation Cast Lead in Israel against, uh, in response to Hamas uh, um, targeting Israel with tens of thousands of rockets, actually over 10,000, in back in 2008 and running up until the present. But just by way of background, I think it's important that I just covered a couple of waves of, of anti-Semitism in Europe, lethal anti-Semitism, starting with Munich in 1972, the Black September Group. Um, everyone here remembers what happened in Munich. 11 Israeli athletes were killed by a Palestinian terror, terrorist group and a West German police officer. Last year in Der Spiegel, Germany's most influential magazine, um, there was a bit of revisionist history going on because the Spiegel wrote, I'm quoting, open quote, it was not brown Nazi help, close quote, but um, it was, I'm sorry, it was um, the Spiegel argued in this, in this article that the right-wing Nazi actually aided the Palestinian terror group. In fact, that was a form of revisionism. There's a long history of scholarship showing it was uh, German leftist radicals and Palestinian terrorists. One historian um, whose work, Dr. Wolfgang Krausauer, whose book hasn't been translated into English, writes a lot about this topic. He was very upset, and this is the quote, it was not brown Nazi help, as the Spiegel writes, but rather a joint work of German left radicals and Palestinian terrorists. So that, that needs to be countered because I think a lot of what's happened over the years is um, many of you may have heard of the group, the Red Army uh, Faction in Germany, um, who worked closely with Palestinian terrorists. This group is sort of now has this image of a Bonnie and Clyde group you know, among many Germans. So their 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 lethal anti-Semitism is played down. Their uh, alliance with uh, fundamentally anti-democratic groups in the Middle East and terrorists is played down. And they're viewed as sort of you know this this Robin Hood. Bonnie and Clyde gang that really wasn't terribly bad. But as you can see, they they played a role in a number of um, attacks on different um, on, on different communities in Germany and abroad. One other event that preceded the 72 Olympics was the the a bomb planned planted in the West German the West Berlin Jewish community in 1969. This has gotten very little attention in the States, but um, the German left, uh, some Maoist group in West Berlin, um, helped plant this bomb. It didn't explode, and I found it. Sometimes you find these wonderful nuggets in the internet. Uh, the JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, reported in 1969, the chairman of the West Berlin Jewish community described a recent bombing attempt at the community center here as, open quote, the greatest incident incident against German Jews since 1945. Close quote. Heinz Galinsky was the president, he was an Auschwitz survivor. Then he went on to say um, he was disappointed by, quote, the weak public reaction to the incident. He deplored the silence of church leaders, politicians, and trade unionists, especially certain intellectual circles who at other times were quick to demonstrate. Um, now, Galinsky, it, it's, it's Galinsky's words in 1969 still resonate today. Um, if you look at, at what's happened um, in Europe in 2012, many of you remember uh, Hezbollah uh, blew up an Israeli tour bus, killed five Israelis in July, and uh, their Bulgarian bus driver. <coughs> and over 30 Israelis were injured. Um, Hezbollah is, is, you know, is declared openly anti-Semitic um, measures, um, not just against Israelis, but 
Jews across the world. So um, this type of, um, and the reaction in Europe, of course, was to discuss how they could sanction Hezbollah, but they first had to see if it was really a, a, a terrorist organization or it's a social service organization. They were unclear because they provide social service benefits. Eventually, they only sanctioned part of the group, its military wing, and if it, it's impossible to distinguish between the groups. So that's the first stage, 69 to 72 in Munich. Um, I would add one thing about Munich. I'm sure many folks here saw Spielberg's film in Munich. The problem with that film is um, it depicts Israel's response as one of, um, you could say, putting this in scary quotes, Jewish revenge, or a form of avenging the deaths. Israel, Israel didn't respond in, in terms of revenge. Israel's response back then, Golda Meir, who was prime minister, were, the response was, were painfully frustrated because the Europeans keep letting the Palestinian terrorists go. So a number of them were apprehended, one in France, who then contacted the Germans in Munich, who said, we don't want to deal with this. He was let go. So the Israeli government at that time just sort of threw up their arms and said, how can we deal with this? The Europeans are, are releasing terrorists. They're not pursuing uh, the, the perpetrators. And that was the response um, to initiate this, this operation. The, the second phase of, of lethal anti-Semitism, again, it's mainly Western Europe and Central Europe, took place in Paris and 30 years ago. The attack, uh, a uh, attack on a synagogue in, in Paris, a bomb was detonated, killing four people and injuring more than 30 others. A year later, 1981, a member of a Palestinian organization, Abu Nidal, um, stormed a bar mitzvah celebration with hand grenades, machine guns, killing two and wounding 30. Um, the third stage is what's taken place really since the second intifada in 2000 and 9-11. And that's where Burgas took place, the attack in Bulgaria, Hezbollah, and probably Iran, at least the, the Israeli government and the Americans in July 2012 said it was a joint um, Iran-Hezbollah operation. Later, the Bulgarians determined it to be the interior ministers to be, to be members of uh, Hezbollah's military wing that were behind the attack. But it, it was an Iranian-sponsored attack in that sense because Iran and Hezbollah are strategic partners. So it's, it's really impossible to, to separate them. In the same year as the Burgas attack, just five months before the attack in March of 2012, another attack took place. And many of you, of course, know this. I'm sure the Mohammed Merah attack in Toulouse, France, where he killed um, three young children and um, school children and a uh, school teacher, as well as uh, three French soldiers, a total of seven French. Uh, he was targeting French Muslim soldiers. So a total of seven people were killed. His, his um, explanation for why he killed, uh, or before the, the killing of, of the four French Jews was, open quote, I killed Jews in France as these are the same Jews who killed innocents in Palestine, close quote. His brother, um, Abed al-Qadar, explained that his brother's outlook. Open quote. My mother always said, we are the Arabs. We were born to hate Jews. This speech I heard all throughout my childhood. Close quote. So this is what's animating, um, it's just not this French Algerian family, but it's animating huge swaths of the, of the French Muslim community in, in <coughs> France. Um, it's interesting because it, it reminds me of Sartre's um, quote, 
and the quote from Sartre, the French philosopher, when he said, words are more treacherous and powerful than we think. And that's certainly, you know, when you follow anti-Semitism, you can see the ad nauseum attacks on Israel and, um, and Jews with very intense language. Wow, it's already been 15 minutes. I really need three hours. Um, so let me, let me fast forward um, in terms of, um, I think, what's, what's been forgotten in, in Europe. And there's a lot of Western scholarship and Israeli scholarship on the, the, the origin of the origins of anti-Zionism or the new anti-Semitism, um, but it's really not that new. The Europeans, um, especially, it's, it's from my perspective, it's really interesting. A lot of left-wing um, journalists and uh, Marxist professors um, in Europe actually diagnosed this problem in the early, late 60s and 70s. A couple examples: Jean Henri, Austrian Jew, survived the, the Auschwitz very prominent journalist, very prolific. He wrote in the late 1960s, quote, open quote, anti-Zionism contains anti-Semitism anti like a cloud contains a storm, close quote. Um, remarkable when you think about it, because right now there's huge debates about whether there's such a thing as anti-Semitic, anti-Israeliism. Um, jumping ahead, Hans Meyer, another uh, Marxist literary professor who fled the GDR the East German communist state to live, where he left to, to live in West Germany, said in 19, roughly 1975, um, open quote, whoever attacks Zionism, but by no means wants the same thing against the Jews as kidding himself or others. The state of Israel is a Jewish state. Anyone who wants to destroy it, avowedly or by means of a policy that can have no effect other than such an annihilation, is practicing the hatred of Jews of yore and from time memorial, close quote. Again, it's a remarkable statement. It's coming from the, the left. So what's interesting today is, as folks know, uh, the attacks from Israel, these, this, again, this ad nauseum, this bottomless pit of attacks on, on directed at the Jewish state are from the left. Judith Butler, literary professor, is one example, who, by the way, you know, she's, she's one, teaches at Berkeley, and she promotes Hamas and Hezbollah's progressive social movements. This is what she said at a teach-in in 2006. Um, She's also a fan of Theodore Adorno, um, another Marxist sociologist philosopher, who, along with Max Horkheimer, in the after the war, um, came up with a theory that I think really helps explain what's happening in Europe when you combine it with Israel. Their notion of um, they use different terminology: secondary anti-Semitism, or sort of a very fancy sociological word. Uh, guilt defensiveness anti-Semitism. Their idea was basically captured by this quote from this Israeli psychoanalyst, analyst, the Germans will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. So you, this, to put it in sort of a kitchen sink psychology terms, uh, many <coughs> Germans, Austrians, and I think it's more widespread now across Europe, are sort of filled with pathological guilt about the Holocaust. How do they respond? They want to purge it, cleanse it. They beat up on Israel as a way to do indirectly what they can do directly against Jews because it's politically and socially incorrect to attack Jews in Europe, um, although it happens. So that's the theory, and now that theory of this guilt defensiveness anti-Semitism has now merged with um, this, this relentless attack on Israel. Um, Butler, of course, is a famous fan of or, uh, Adorno, but she doesn't recognize any of his pro-Israel positions. He was actually very pro-Israel, very concerned about German leftists after the Six-Day War, whose eyes were filled with rage. 
about Israel because of the defeat of um, the Arab nations. They suddenly flipped within a short period of time. And it's, it's, it's amazing when you just look at the, the German leftist movement. They were after the Holocaust, um, 50s and 60s, very pro-Israel. Suddenly, the student movement flipped within a rapid-fire period of time. And this scared Adorno. Um, one other um, person I should mention is um, Henrik Broder, um, a German Jewish journalist, um, very prominent journalist who's written a lot about this. Um, he, he actually left Israel, uh, Germany in the early 80s because he was very um, disappointed with uh, this rising anti-Semitic, anti-Israelism. And this is, was his quote, what, uh, writing in Die Zeit, the Times, a German weekly, open quote, you're still your parents' children, your Jew today is the state of Israel, close quote. Then he went to Israel. I was back in Germany, but you get, this was in, in 80, 81. Um, and he was one of the one of the more formidable thinkers at that time who who developed this this idea that this is that this what's happening in Germany is largely um, revolve it's largely revolving around guilt. Um, now the I'm going to fast forward a little bit to to what I would call um, moral anti-Semitism, which is also a big component of what's happening in Europe right now. All these human rights NGOs, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch. Um, Peace groups, they have a particular obsession with Israel. And another German writer, non-Jewish writer, Elke Eike Geisel, in, um, he died in 1997, he was born in 1945. I think he said this, he wrote this in the 90s. Again, he anticipated what, what for folks who are, who are working in this field, um, experience on a daily basis. And I'll, I'll read it, sort of a, you know, a lot of these German writers, there's a lot of hot air. Um, but if you can meander your way through some of this, uh, it actually, it's very insightful. Um, the Jews, if they're not dead, should please suffer, admonish and warn, but not fight back, close quote. So he was first tackling the notion of uh, Jews who flex their muscles, whether in the 1967 war, 73 war, that disturbs the notion of, of, um, of what, what, how we should deal with Jews. Memorials, commemorations, um, commemorating the Holocaust, that's fine, but fighting back, um, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be warned. Then he goes on to say, open quote, to be against Israel in the name of peace is something new. For this hostility has cast it the product of honorable political intentions. It is the morality of morons. Anti-Jewish hostility arises from the purest human needs. It comes from the yearning for peace. It is therefore entirely innocent. It is a universal it is as universal as it is moral. This moral anti-Semitism completes Germany's restoration to goodness. In that, it heralds the perfection of humanity, the banality of good. So it's interesting that he was able to anticipate um, how a lot of the human rights um, workers, activists, are dealing with Israel. I won't go too much on the Durban strategy because I know many folks know about this, but I will tell one anecdote from my experience in terms of this moral anti-Semitism. In 2010, um, I got an email from an activist in Finland, a pro-Israel activist. He told me that on the website of Finland's third largest newspaper, the head of Amnesty International, Frank Johansson, wrote that Israel's a scum state. Now, I, you know, I, this was, you know, I wasn't totally stunned, but I, you know, I wanted to verify it, so um, I asked him to send me the website, we did Google translations, and he walked me through this. 
And then I called up the head of Amnesty International in, in, in Helsinki, Frank Hansen, said I'm a reporter for the Jerusalem Post. You know, I noticed on your blog that you wrote um, Israel's a, a scum state, you know, is that, is that accurate? He said, yes. And I said, well, um, are there, you know, are you sure it's a scum state? Yes. Okay, and then he justified it, and this was also in his blog, quote, a friend of mine who works in Israel was visiting. And while piling wood in the shed, we got to talk about his favorite topic. After several years of residence in the Holy Land, he came to the conclusion that Israel is a scum state. Based on my own visit, which occurred in the 70s and the last time in the 1990s, I agree. I said, okay, are there any other scum states in the world, Frank? Uh, no. There are some Russian officials who I would classify as scum. So that was my conversation with the head of Amnesty International, in Helsinki. Um, I did call the London office and they told me that he, they, got, they got into a semantic debate with me about, was it, he actually said it was a creep state, and I said, no, the only alternative translation is, is a douchebag. Uh, that's what, I had a, a group of native translators in Finland who went through this, so it's as, if, it's, it's as if creep state makes it any better. Um, this is the reality. He wasn't fired. Um, I think he had to go through some type of um, Apology with the Israeli uh, embassy in in, um, in Helsinki, but he continued to work, and he's, uh, as I understand, he's still with Helsinki promoting human rights. Um, so that you know that gives you a sense of um, that that's that's not an anomaly because I, there's been other cases. I don't have a lot of time to delve into Amnesty International, but I would also mention that there are you know there are working definitions of anti-Semitism. I think this is important because the Europeans recently um, dropped uh, their their agency, it's now called the agency's, European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights in Vienna, dropped the working definition of anti-Semitism. It's a modern definition. I see David Harris is here, it's nice to see him, the president of the agency, executive director, um, who, whose, whose organization played a critical role in developing this modern definition of anti-Semitism in Berlin in 2004 with uh, Deirdre Berger from the Berlin office. And the definition is basically, um, the gist of it is Natan Sharansky's three Ds, the demonization of Israel, delegitimization, and double standards applied to Israel. There's more to it than that, but that's the heart of it. So the EU has dropped this working definition. There's fights going on to get it restored. The U.S. State Department still retains it, which is, which is great. I would only, my only concern right now is I think the definition has a couple of loopholes that could be filled given the, the changing times. One is it misses the point of accusing Jews of warmongering. Um, that's a very prevalent theme in Europe, and it surfaces at times here in the United States, um, from, again, mainly from the left, um, where Jews are accused of stoking war, of being a, a fifth column loyal to Israel first and not to the United States. Um, and also, and this is very difficult because it's, 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 it's not scientific, and, 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 and at least there's not been a lot of scholarship, but this notion of capturing, capturing guilt defensiveness anti-Semitism in Europe. That's widespread. Um, how can you work that into the definition? I'm not really sure, but I think that needs to be dealt with on, on some level. How are we doing with time? Five, ten minutes, okay. <laughs> One other... Um, I just wanted to quote... Um, Henrik Broder, because I, I, I followed his writings up there. He's not, he's not well known in the United States, but in Europe, or at least in Germany, the German-speaking countries, he has a very prominent role. 
This was testimony he gave to the Bundestag Parliament in Germany in 2008. Quoting him, the modern anti-Semite does not believe in the protocols of the elders of Zion, but instead he fantasizes about an Israel lobby that is supposed to control American foreign policy like a tail that wags the dog. For the modern anti-Semite, it goes without saying that every year on January 27th he will commemorate the liberation of Auschwitz. But at the same time, he militates for the right of Iran to have atomic weapons. For how can, he's quoting a politician here, for how can one deny Iran what is what is what, what one has permitted Israel or Pakistan, as Norman Pech, the foreign the former foreign policy spokesman of the German Left Party has put it. Should mention that the German Left Party in Germany is the third largest party in the Bundestag, and two of its MPs were aboard the Marvi Marmara in 2010 with um, Turkish jihadists, um, uh, peace activists, putting that in scary quotes, and they tried to break the Gaza blockade to provide um, you know, obsolete medicines and and uh, German language books. So I, I didn't know that so many children in Gaza can read German language books, or children's books. Um, and these two MPs were aboard uh, the, the, the Marvin Marmer, returned to Germany, and were received as heroes. And I'll, I'll end on this note, um, because I think the, the notion of disparate treatment is very important, and we see a lot of, um, a lot of this coming from on the state level. I don't want to get into Hungary or the Eastern European countries right now, that's a whole other situation, but France has, has made some progress, significant progress in my view, from you know, 2001 when their ambassador, or was it 2000, uh, to, to London. The UK called Israel that shitty little country. Um, Hollande, the new uh, president, I think has you know, issued some very powerful statements. His interior minister, uh, the other day at a memorial event for the Toulouse um, murders, um, explicitly said anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. So that's very encouraging. The critics, of course, would argue that's what needs to be said in the mosques, in textbooks, um, in, in every public forum, and instead of at sort of preaching to the choir at a Jewish event, um, shifted to where you know where there's going to be real crossfire, um, and that that's unfortunately not happening um, in Germany and. It, in Austria, after Marvi Marmara was seized by Israel, uh, the Vienna um, City Council, within 24 hours, um, issued a resolution blasting Israel. There was no investigation. And again, the only thing that unified the City Council from the far right, the neo-Nazi right, which was the party of Jörg Haider, remember him from Austria, to the, to the left, the Social Democrats, to all the different parties, they were able to unify on one issue a resolution blasting Israel. There was not one dissenting vote. So this is, this is not atypical in Europe where issues of Israel and um, Jews tend to unify disparate groups. Uh, the Bundestag after the seizure of the Marvi Mar 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 Marmara, all 600 plus deputies, again from the German Left Party to Merkel's party to the Social Democrats, voted to condemn Israel's seizure you know, a month after uh, the seizure in July of 2010. So you had um, without getting into names, you had a, the leading foreign policy spokesman for the Christian Democratic Union, who's very pro-Israel. Um, I think he must have changed his views after he got some criticism, but he's generally good, but standing shoulder to shoulder with the head of the link, the left party, the foreign policy spokesman, who in 2006, Wolfgang Gierke, said we are all Hezbollah at a 2006 rally against the um, Israel's uh, self-defense measures during the Second War in Lebanon. So you have two different groups unifying on the Marvi Marmara issue. As we know later, Israel was justified in seizing uh, the vessel. 
Um, so those are very troubling signs, um, and we're seeing that again in the German parliament with the, with the issue of product labels. Um, Israel, the Green Party has aggressively pushed uh, that Israel, Israeli products from the disputed territories be labeled. There's no other measure in the German parliament right now to deal with a territorial dispute in the world, and there's no shortage of territorial disputes, as we know. I'm waiting for the product label measure for Crimea. Um, I don't think it'll come. But it would, it would interest me to see what the German party actually pushes for that. There's no shortage of time to deal with Israel in the parliament, but these, all these other ter ter territorial disputes, whether it's Western Sahara, Morocco, somehow are, not, are nowhere on the radar screen. Now, you know, if you use the anti-Semitism word, folks will get very upset in Europe. But if, if you examine these definitions that have been formulated, certainly this sort of plain form of discrimination, as Charles Kreidhammer recently wrote in a, com in a commentary about anti-Semitism dealing with these American universities that are, are supporting BDS motions, said anti-Semitism is simply discrimination. He's right. That, that, I mean, that would help, I think, you know, enlighten folks about what anti-Semitism is in, in terms of many of these examples. Um, and of course, it misses other aspects, but um, I think he, he's on the right track to try to simplify this debate instead of getting into a, an endless semantic um, um, discussion about what anti-Semitism, because in Germany it's very, it strikes me as very odd. It's a country that is very focused on mathematical precision, builds brilliant cars, um, can analyze things in, 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 in highly sophisticated ways, but when, you, when it comes to anti-Semitism, no one knows what it is. Of course it is, you know, most folks think it means if you, if you put Jews in a cattle wagon and cart them off to, to Sachsenhausen and Buchenwald, that's anti-Semitism. But if, if you're not part of, you know, Adolf Hitler's inner circle, Anything that falls below that is not anti-Semitism. Now, I'm being a bit hyperbolic here, but you get the point. Um, and I, you know, it's it's you know venues like this, um, you know, help I think, but um, certainly it, it needs to move into um, into the European parliaments um, because, in contrast to the states and on here, this has been my experience. There are simply no countervailing forces in Europe. There are some. But it's not, it, it, it pales in comparison to the United States. You have the AGC, you have ADL, you have very informed uh, constituencies, you have politicians who understand these issues. Um, but in Europe, it's, these types of countervailing forces are largely non-existent. So there's a great, great tolerance for anti-Semitism and, unfortunately, a, um, a, lot, of anti, um, a lot of promotion of anti-Semitism. So I want to thank you. I know this is a little bit uh, all over, but um, there was a lot to say, and I didn't want to, you know, go on and on. Thank you very much for the presentation. It's amazing your layers of uh, analysis and experience, all the stuff you've been doing over the years. So I paid him to say that. <laughs> no, so thank you. So we have uh, time for Q and A. Anybody has any questions? We start with the woman behind Josh and over Josh. Um, uh, that Mark Zuckerberg cartoon, the first one you showed. Now that has nothing to do with Israel. You know, there was n nothing to do with Zionism or Israel there. There was pure anti-Semitism with the, with the hooked nose, which he doesn't even have. So, you know, it, it was pure anti-Semitism. Since Europe is so politically correct, didn't their readers complain about that? Because, you know, if it's not politically correct to be anti-Semitic, that was purely anti-Semitic, nothing, again, nothing to do with Israel. So didn't they get complaint from their own readers? I would have to check the, um, you know, with, I, 
the, the editorial office. I don't, my experience with some of these cartoons that our readers complain, it's, it might be readers who are members of the German-Israeli Friendship Society, as in the case in the, the other cartoons showing Netanyahu poisoning the peace process. The Zu Deutsche, in my view, has been testing the limits of anti-Semitism. Um, so these Is it in a very rural part of Germany? No, it's in Munich. Largest cities. So, it's I mean, so, so don't they feel like guilty seeing a cartoon like that? The readers? I don't know. I think it's true. I don't, I don't know what's rolling around the heads of the readers on, on this cartoon, but um, you know, if, if if this imagery has been look, twelve years of fascism can't be deleted within you know that's a, that's a long period of time. Um, the Zuckerberg case, that image was very ubiquitous in, in during the Hitler movement. I'm not saying that there's a continuity here, but all I'm, I'm saying is that it's not so easy to, to eradicate 12 years of fascism and, that, and, and certain traditions in terms of depictions of Jews. They realize they made a mistake, but at the same time, I know that the editor of the opinion page greenlighted the cartoon, the chief editor. But did he who issue an apology for the Jewish voices. Did he issue an apology? Because some people got that early. Yeah, the, 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 the um, cartoonist wrote me an email saying that I didn't intend to, you know... No, not you. Do they issue an apology to their readers in the print edition? No. Because I was going back and forth on Twitter with the editorial. I asked them, did you issue a correction? And they said, our, uh, what, what the cartoonist said stands. And I said, well, is it in the paper? They just kept saying no. It's uh, what the cartoonist said. So Josh, and then we'll go over yes. here. <coughs> on the uh, cartoon issue, and that's really... In your research on these cartoons, do you find it that the cartoonist is being assigned, um, you know, Zuckerberg is taking over the world, what do you think about it, draw the cartoon, or is it really like the newspaper editorial desks are coming up with the um, notion and then he's just going to draw it? So maybe, I guess i got a couple questions, so that's the first one. So who's really, who have you found is actually determining those things? The second question is, we were talking about um, anti-Semitism in Germany and the left in the 60s. In your research, have you found um, uh, the inciting incident that showed that when people switched from being really supportive of Israel to being really against it. Uh, and then the third one is um, the, your, your last description of the moral, um, the European moral grounds. And I guess I'm just very interesting in that Jews like suffered under Europe, and now we gave them a chance to have a country, and now look at look at a mess they've made of it. So now we can happily discriminate against them again. Is that a reading of it? Let me, let me try to uh, tackle the first time I might have just a follow-up question to your question about your third question. Um, the I, I don't know what the decision-making process was in terms of these cartoons. There were um, news pegs that were used, like the... the, um, the was Facebook platform. Right, the, the Facebook, right, and the Iranian talks in Geneva. So those were sort of the news pegs that were used. I'm not sure how it was assigned or wasn't assigned. Um, I, you know, I think you know many of these cartoonists, and I said many of the writers on the art pages are largely some of them just oblivious to what you know contemporary anti-Semitism is. Others are testing the limits, you know, um, because they see you know there's a writer Jakob Augstein whose family owns 25 percent of their Spiegel. He was writing columns last year saying that Israel and the Republican Party are responsible for basically all the post-Arab Spring failures, and that Netanyahu is um, cracking the whip and controlling Germany. Um, he was a major writer. Um, you know, there was blowback against him. 
Um, your second question dealt with well, the, 60s, the 60s. I mean, I think, you know, it, it almost sounds like it was a turning on a switch. The, the light bulb went on and the student movement suddenly shifted from sort of, you know, generally pro-Israel views to anti-Israeli views, while the, while the academics, including, as I mentioned, Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno, who actually were affiliated with the AJC, as I understand it, David, right? They did research. They did our stu studies in prejudice, a five-volume series in, in the late 40s, early 50s. Right. Um, which also is well-known because folks focus on other areas of their work, but they made major contributions in, in connection with the AJC in terms of really understanding the inner workings of post-Holocaust um, anti-Semitism and, and during the, the Hitler movement, although not as much. Um, so I don't really have an explanation. I mean, yeah. this question has been rolling around in my head for years. I don't. I don't have an answer to that. Why these students suddenly flipped? Might have been because the Israelis, you know, defeated the Arab nations in '67, and that that you know they went from this sort of utopian kibbutz-like atmosphere where they were reading Heinrich Heine and all these German writers to suddenly you know um, defeating you know. A number of major arms. The, the last question I didn't understand. Yeah, I mean, that was like, maybe one of those in questions. It's just more like, it, in my mind, I'd be talking about uh, it was kind of this moral idea of anti Semitism that's come up lately. And this idea that we can't really be mean to Israel because, like, in our mind, we felt bad, as you said in the beginning. We were guilty about the Jews and the Holocaust. And now we've lived with that guilt for two generations, and now we. Um, now that Israel is shown to be such a, a bad place, a vicious, a vicious actor on the international stage, it's okay for us to be anti-Semitic again, basically, because they've proven that we were, we were right in World War II. I mean, what I would say is that there was a German journalist, his name is Wolfgang Pogt. Again, he's, he's known in, in certain circles within Germany, but he's not known in, in the English-speaking world. He, I think, again, this is one of those sort of experiences what captures my reporting over the years in one sentence, and I'm paraphrasing him. He said Germans are acting as Israel's probation officer to prevent their victims from relapsing. So that notion, I think, is very important because you have you know, this, more, this, this outgrowth of moralism or didacticism where we've learned our lessons from the Holocaust, we have this major memorial in Berlin, now we're sort of the world masters of working through our history, and we need to show the Israelis that they're transgressing, and now, in a, in a weird way, we're serving as their probation officers. And if you relapse, um, because and there's another undertone to this, um, which is you went through Auschwitz, you went through Buchenwald, you went to the extermination camps, that was sort of a reform school, you, you made it through, and now again, we don't want you to relapse. Yeah, relapse meaning, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm just having a little bit of trouble with the uh, economist cartoon. Um, you know, I'm personally for the talks with Iran, and um, it did seem that when that they began unfolding, that Netanyahu did, you know, very vocally advocate that they should be happening, which is his right. Um, and but he, he didn't advocate that, though. Talks should be. Well, he objected yeah. to the deal. He's, he's never said he's ex ex against the talks. Yeah, perhaps, but he said, you know, the message seems to be that Iran, you, you should be very careful about trusting Iran on anything. And we can, again, it's not about whether or not, to, you know. And, um, and it did seem like Jewish groups in the United States, you know, did mobilize, I could be wrong, but they, it seems like they did mobilize members of Congress to, you know, <coughs> pass legislation which 
would at the very least make having um, constructive talks a lot more difficult. And I guess my question is, you know, when is it all right for, you know, what kind, what kind of cartoon can be created that could express that idea? Um, and, it, and it seems to me, by looking at the cartoon, that, you know, it didn't seem to me to be anti-Semitic. Um, maybe it is, I, I don't know about this stuff that much, but what kind of a cartoon could be constructed to express the sort of ideas that I'm saying um, without it, in your opinion, being anti-Semitic? I'm not an editorial cartoonist, although I really wish I was. Um, I mean, I, you know, certainly the, I can tell you, what, it's easy to say what, what the, what the, how, why the cartoon could be depicted in a non-anti-Semitic way. And there's a, there's a, a running thread um, where Israel is shown, or Jewish groups in this case, using the Star of David, a religious symbol, showing that they're um, holding American foreign policy hostage. And, and there's been a lot of scholarship in that area explaining why that's anti-Semitic. They're lobbying like other groups and not holding, you know, um, American foreign policy hostage. And those those ideas go back in the 30s to um, help me out here the um, the first the American first movement with um, what was the Charles Charles uh, Lindbergh. Lindbergh. Thank you. Those ideas. I mean, I think Philip Roth captured that well in one of his novels. I've often heard said that the resurgence of this vehement anti-Semitism in Western Europe, including England, can be attributed in large part to the unprecedented Islamic immigration to those countries in the last 50 years or so. Do you agree with that? Uh, as would you comment on that? Right. This is the um, topic that dare not speak its name in Europe. Um, there is, there's clearly alliances have formed between different European Muslim groups and um, the European left, um, and that and there's there's been demonstrations over the years where those two groups have aligned during Operation Cast Lead, in particular when I was reporting on uh, demonstrations every week involving tens of thousands of people in Berlin, not in, and it was scattered across other German cities and, and Europe, um, and that alliance was was very strong. Um, so there, it, it's, you know, European Muslim constituencies play a, a, um, a very um, significant role, um, and there's widespread anti-Semitism. There's been some studies done in that area. One was actually um, squashed and then was published, and I think it was 2003, detailing the high levels of anti-Semitic attitudes by the European Union. I think it was the year... Uh, Daniel Cohn-Bendit, then eventually a European member of Parliament, published a study on his website from the Green Party, interesting. Um, so it's, it's the, the, the problem I see is um, the politicians, um, the elites in many of these countries are sort of painfully indifferent to the anti-Semitism. So when the surfaces, they'll chalk it up, as, as many of you know, to the Middle East conflict, when it's not really about the Middle East conflict. But then you have this, this bizarre interplay between this guilt defensiveness anti-Semitism that I've talked about, um, which is very prevalent, and, um, for lack of a better phrase, Islamic animated anti-Semitism that deals with other issues. These, these different forms of anti-Semitism are merging, and it's creating a very, very potent uh, cocktail in Europe right now. Um, let me just turn to Charles since 
gets the priority through the questions. So thank you. So uh, the question is, I want to challenge you a bit. I think maybe from the European perspective, you mentioned in passing that you feel that in the United States that it's more, it's, it's easier to confront and deal with anti-Semitism. It's much, uh, there's more informed people. You kind of said some, some, some things about the United States in passing. And I'd like to challenge you on it because I would say, I mean, you and I started out in the UK 20 years ago, and we spoke about how there was sort of a wave of BDS movement and kind of anti-Israel, anti-Semitic uh, sentiment kind of coming as a wave. It was in the UK 20, 25 years ago. I think it arrived in Canada 10, 15 years ago, and I would argue that it's certainly arriving in the United States. And what I find that I find intriguing, and I'm here now 10 years, is that I'm wondering. Do you find that the American Jewish community, organizations, intellectuals, are really capable of fighting anti-Semitism? Because there is this debate, what it is, what it isn't. Is condemning Israel or Israeli policy anti-Semitic, or is it not anti-Semitic? You know, what is anti-Semitism? The, the community is kind of, I would say, kind of stuck in this debate of what it is, similar to what you mentioned in Germany. And I think that this whole notion of due loyalty and Jewish power in Congress, I think is a, it's, it's um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's in the room, it's, it's, it's there, it's present, and I think it's, it's hindering people from taking a very strong stand, from what I see. And I'm wondering now that you've been here for a couple of months and you're connected to what's going on in Washington, what, what's your reading? Is it really, are we able to fight anti-Semitism? Do we understand the BDS movement here? Well, I mean, I, I think Europe can fight anti-Semitism if it wants. Europe can quickly regenerate itself. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a bundle of potential in Europe. We've seen that at least, you know, looking at European history. Um, but they're in a rut um, for a number of reasons. Um, one example here. I mean, Stuart Applebaum's here, sitting. You can just raise your hand. He's president of the retail wholesale department, so a workers' union, and the head of the Jewish Labor Committee. Um, I think it's important just to, to mention this because in 2007, Stuart sort of jumped in the future and saw that there was BDS in the trade union movements in Europe. What he did was um, they organized a petition campaign that got all the major labor unions in the United States to sign on to a petition opposing BDS in the trade union. That petition worked its way across the, the Atlantic Ocean in Germany where I was and helped crystallize an anti-BDS um, program in the German labor movement. And I think around the continent, because the Germans are clearly the most, has the, Germany is the most powerful and um, labor movement. So, I mean, we, we've seen that happen, but I, I think where, where the actual fight back has to come is from uh, the American liberal, progressive, left community, um, and that's going to be a challenge. And I think, in, in my view, um, most of the work will need to be done on, on a sort of grassroots organizing level. Um, very people-intensive work, having very intensive discussions on college campuses before these divestment motions start, instead of scrambling at the last minute to uh, put out brush fires. Um, what I think is disturbing in the States, at least what I've seen, and I've been divorced from the States for a long time, so I'm not you know, immersed in this like you folks are, is this notion of charging Jews and, and Israel supporters, even non-Jewish Israel supporters, of stoking jingoism. This type of, or, or as you point out, is being a fifth of, of having dual loyalties, being overly loyal to the state of Israel as opposed to the United States. This stuff, which you know, is, has creeped into the mainstream discourse here, which I didn't see many year, a number of years ago, um, is is 
you know, folks should start sweating uh, about. Um, but I mean, I, I don't. Again, I think um, it's it's um, it's got a it's a tough question. But I, I, I guess I'm I'm more skeptical about the top-down style of organizing that takes place in terms of fighting anti-Semitism, media work, um, putting out flyers, public relations, which is important. Don't get me wrong. And I'm um, and I'd like to see more sort of organizational work on the grassroots level, sort of creating mini movements in hotspot areas where these are problems. Because most Americans, in my view, are not, you know, thinking, you know, during the course of work, you know, American Jewish power controls Congress, you know, and, and you know, they want to stoke wars. Um, this is coming from certain elites, um, academics, um, and the same is true in Europe. This is an elite-driven thing. Look at most of the anti-Semitism in Germany, Gunter Grass, what must be said, right, his famous poem accusing uh, Israel as wanting to wipe out Iran. Um, this is, you know, in that Iran is, Israel's the greatest threat to world security. It's a Nobel Peace Prize, a Nobel uh, winner for, for literature, who's actually getting a platform again in the Zoo Deutsche newspaper, the one that showed the Zuckerberg cartoon. That's where his poem was published. And just to add one more point to that, the Spiegel writer who owns 25% of Spiegel, Augstein, even went further and said, Gunter Grass speaks for all of us. He said that this notion that, you know, we have to, that Israel's a danger and that um, this comes from all, you know, represents all. So he went even further, but he wasn't accused of anti-Semitism, only Grass was. And there was, to Germany's credit, most of the journalists held the line there. Most of the journalists criticized Grass. With Augstein, it was different because he's, 46 or so, he's young, he's attractive. He, when journalists see him, they see themselves. So this is the modern embodiment of a new Germany, where Grass, of course, was a, you know, a, a Nazi, who often SS member, so it was very moralistic, and the Germans didn't like that. So he was trashed right away. Um, there's one other question here. Yep. Thank you very much for your presentation. I'm wondering if there are countries in Europe demonstrate more intense anti-Semitism, including sentiment against Israel's existence? And if so, why? It's, um, it's a mixed bag right now. I mean, I guess one, one litmus test might, might be, I'm going out on a limb here, um, is the uh, UDI, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the Palestinian Declaration at the UN uh, for, for an independent state. Um, in um, 2000, help me out here, 2012, was it, Israel? No, thank you. Um, we have a UN rep here, so I, I can defer to his expertise uh, from the Israeli consulate. Thanks for coming. The, um, so the, the countries that, only one country in Europe supported Israel in opposing that declaration of independence from the PLO, that was, anyone know? No, Ireland. Ireland will want to dismantle Israel. I don't know. Czech Republic. Is that it? Oh, that's right. Uh, Czech Republic was the only country, uh, which was interesting. The other countries, you know, Israel's other partners or allies, uh, Germany, uh, Poland, they abstained. Um, so that that's one test. Um, um, but on the other hand, um, Germany, certainly in the military and intelligence sector, is providing uh, very, very important help. Um, to Israel. Those second strike submarines, uh, I, I would not play them down in terms of importance for Israel's uh, security. Um, the, the other measure is UN forums, 
I think what I've noticed over the last year, two years, especially with the election of Rouhani, there's less criticism right now from um, expected partners in Europe like Germany, um, Poland, Czech Republic in terms of criticizing um, um, Khamenei, his anti-Semitic statements that take place in these different forums. Um, there's been a, a significant decrease in European attacks. France um, is also a mixed bag, Britain as well. Um, again, one other test, and I'll, I'll stop here, is the, the designation of the Hezbollah. Uh, the Germans, the, the, the Netherlands, of course, designated Hezbollah as a terrorist organization many years ago, 2004, but only Britain in 2008 designated the military wing. After the Burgess attack, there was momentum to outlaw Hezbollah in Europe because they do fundraising, they send fighters to Syria, according to one report. So they're, it's a legal organization. It's not like it's a bodega on the corner. We go up and sign up to be a Hezbollah member. But I see a lot of these members in my neighborhood. I've seen them at demonstrations. In Germany, there's over a 1,000 members right now, legal. It sounds bizarre, but that's, that's the way it is. The Americans, of course, you know, outlawed Hezbollah during the uh, Clinton period in 1995 because they killed, before Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah had killed more Americans than any other organization. Um, so another test would be which, which countries supported a full ban or a partial ban of Hezbollah. Uh, the countries that were leading the effort were the UK, um, Germany came on board later but did start to push for the, a, a ban of the military wing, and then France, largely because in my view of the military intervention of Hezbollah in Syria, and France sort of sees Syria as sort of a mini mandate or mini colony because they used to be, uh, used to be their mandate area. Um, was upset that Hezbollah was aiding Assad, so they decided to, to um, support the designation. But they did a few months ago honor Hezbollah to dinner in Beirut. I wrote about it, and the French embassy in Israel uh, representative called me up and you know, pleading with me to, to, to delete the article or the section because they didn't honor them. She said it was just a dinner, and I said, but they, you know, I have a source here that said they honored them. Well, they were, you know, it was more of a dinner, but you get the drift of what's happening here. Um, I just was wondering if you have any feeling on uh, whether American leftist Jews, you know, have any sense of of what the end game of being totally on the left, saying that Israel is colonialism and that you know that there, there's too much aggression. If you think that it's a naivete because there's they because we have this tradition of trying to create dialogue, trying to do the right thing you know, um, be ethical, be the most moral, so we're cri criticizing our, our own selves, but in that same way that we were naive in Europe when we didn't see coming what was really coming, most people didn't see it, they were like, oh, we're German. Um, that Americans think, oh, you know, we're American, we're, we're playing this dialogue game, but really the end game for what they're talking about is complete annihilation of the state of Israel. So that they're, it's like a naivete that these leftists feel, I'm just curious if you, you see that too. Sure. I, mean, I, I have to, I, mean, I only scrape the surface in terms of these, you know, the debates in the states, you know, with, with these different groups, Peter Beinhardt and, and you know, um, American um, progressive and leftist Jews, these different So I'm not, I mean, I'm not really immersed in the situation. What I would say though is I think it just doesn't apply to American leftist Jews or Jews is there's a, an, absent, an absence of understanding that ideology matters. So Hamas's ideology 
what's, what's stated in their charter, this lethal anti-Semitism, this obliteration of Israel, um, is, is real. And you, and you have to take this business very seriously. Hezbollah as well. I mean, I didn't quote one of the, uh, one of the um, a Hezbollah member who was arrested in, in uh, Cyprus and convicted last year. Um, it's the first conviction, by the way, in Europe. His name was Yakub. Um, when asked during interrogation, why, you know, why were you observing Israeli flights landing? Um, he told them, the reason I do that is I'm a Hezbollah member and our job is to, to monitor Jews around the world. That's what we do. That was a quote from him. I mean, um, so, again, ideology matters. And I think Americans, it's just not Americans, it's Europeans, there's a sense when you're not in the Middle East, you're not immersed in the security um, aspects of the Middle East, you sort of have this very pragmatic notion we can problem solve and these ideologies will, will eventually uh, vanish. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical about that, especially you know, what we're seeing in terms of, in terms of Syria. Um, these, these ideologies are you know, causing cause the deaths right now over, I mean, over 150,000 Syrians, mainly Assad's ideology, which is Iran. So okay. Iran, let, let me just get one Can question. Can you talk a little bit about what you did in Syria, what you were going um, on and doing? You were recently in Syria, which... Okay. Can I, can I do that question? Thank you. Well, I just wanted to, if you could... The brief, reason I wanted to say is good questions are better than good answers. Sure. <laughs> uh, brief contrast um, how these fourth state massive institutions like the Spiegel and The Economist and government, the Bundestag, are, are they bolstered differently in Europe than America? by the fifth estate, the blogosphere, the common man, the semi-legitimate journalism? Is it, do they feel like they have more of a mandate in Europe because of what's being said out there in the, in the world of the web and the social media circle, as opposed to in America where maybe they have less of a mandate to do so? Is there any contrast in your eyes? I think, I mean, mandate, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, I would interpret that to mean there's more demand for um, you know, um, um, turning Israel into a human punching bag. Um, and there's a lot of supply side uh, yes. outlets taking place, not just in terms of blogs, um, but mainstream publications. So when you have this type of demand, especially in Germany, where you still have this old burning desire to, um, to um, deal with, with the guilt of the crimes of the Holocaust, um, there was one quote I wanted to mention. Um, let me just see if I can find it here. If not, um, let me just see if I can't. Um, no, it's not there. But so I think the the um, if that makes sense. There's in Germany. There's an insatiable insatiable desire among many segments of the population to alleviate their their pathological guilt. How do they do that? Well, there are publications that will, you know, depict Israel as, as an aggressor. One example is the Zudeutsch again. Um, in during the 2006 war in Lebanon, the second war in Lebanon, Israel, if you recall, was attacked on two fronts at the outset of the war: in the south, Hamas, and in the north, Hezbollah. The Zudeutsch's headline that day was Israel in response. Of course, Israel attacks on two fronts. Instead of writing. Israel, you know, Israel is attacked on two fronts. It was the opposite. I mean, it's ad nauseum. I mean, it can go through thousands of examples, but it's again portraying Israelis as aggressors. It's a common theme to sort of again 
make one think, you know what, we weren't as bad as we thought we were during the 12 years of fascism. You know? And that's why you see this, this repetitive um, notion that Israelis are, are Nazis. I mean, Jakob Augstein, again, major commentator for Der Spiegel, wrote in one of his columns, he compared Gaza to a concentration camp. You know, so, um, sure. You really avoided introducing Israel into this discussion. And how organized are they in fulminating the anti-Israel, anti-Semitism? Repeat the question, please. She asked, um, she said, I uh, avoided the question of Islam and how Islam uh, fosters anti-Semitism. Is that right? Well, yes. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I discussed these, at least these different waves of, of lethal anti-Semitism in Germany showing, again, these were Palestinian groups, most, most of whom were secular, but um, there have been rallies in, in Germany, especially during the Second War in Lebanon, where um, politicians have stood out and said, we are all Hezbollah, those types of notions where um, I don't, I mean, they should realize that the Shiite organization is, is animated by ideology. Um, I would only say that, yeah, there's, there's, you know, Europeans, many Europeans are playing down the, I would say the, the, the notion of radical Islam, because I think, I, I do believe it's important to make a distinction. I don't buy into this notion that Islam is inherently violent. Um, and that's, that's, that is a, a huge problem. Um, I mean, Charles invites me back for another talk. I can delve into, into just the topic of, of radical Islam animating um, anti-Semitism in Germany from in the different Muslim groups, Sunni and Shiite, that are, are playing out. Um, but I do see that as a, as a critical role in terms of Hezbollah. Um, so in terms of Syria, um, yeah, I mean, this doesn't deal with anti-Semitism strictly. Um, but I just want to make one other point before I forget. Um, I feel like I'm bouncing around like a ping pong ball. The, um, this notion, Charles makes this point a lot, this notion that anti-Semitism only affects Jews, of course, you know, is, is fundamentally incorrect, right? It, it starts with Jews and it, it triggers a domino effect. And, it, you know, in the case of the Second World War, you know, 25 million Russians died and, you know, Americans and all different groups. Um, in Burgas and Bulgaria, as I mentioned, it, the three Hezbollah operatives were targeting Jews. They also killed a Bulgarian bus driver, a Bulgarian Muslim bus driver, um, whose wife, when I was in Bulgaria, would not leave her a house for at least six months and was crying every day in her mid-30s with, I think, two children. Um, the, the other notion, of course, is in um, um, there have been other cases where, where non-Jews, Jews have been killed. So it's, it's something, you know, just to factor in, I think this point has to get across, I guess, when you're doing this type of pedagogical work, which is, which is very difficult. In terms of Syria, um, I, last September, October, I traveled to Gaziantep in southern Turkey um, as part of a, I was reporting for different publications for the, the Jerusalem Post, um, Fox News, and the Atlantic Magazine, and National Review on the refugee crisis. I'd actually gone there because I thought, Obama was going to lob missiles at Assad in Damascus, but that was, he pulled the plug on that. And I ended up going and did work on the border. I crossed over into Syria into a city called Jarabalus. I didn't go deep in because it's, uh, it's controlled by this group ISIS, this Al-Qaeda group. Um, they control the, the entire town. But I got a flavor of the, the refugee crisis, and I had a, um, an 
interpreter with me, who was a teacher in Damascus, I believe, or in the Idlib province, maybe Aleppo, I'm sorry, I have to check. In any event, we met with, with refugees outside of the main camp, and I would ask them questions about, you know, who's responsible for the war? Um, what do you think of Hezbollah's role, Iran's role? Some of them brought up Israel. Um, um, other refugees I've talked to, for example, recently in Bulgaria, I was there in February, told me, well, the Syrian Kurds sort of, you know, said we don't have problems with the Israelis. That's, that's expected, the Kurds, you know, really, you know, they tend to see Israelis as allies because of the similar persecution and, and security issues. But some of the, the Sunni Syrians, who traditionally were inculcated on a daily basis with, with Israel hatred, told me, well, we saw, I saw the Israelis um, in the, on, the south, on the southern front, or in Syria on the northern front of Israel, put two people in a medical uh, um, car or, or, and, and helped them and provided medical care. And that's sort of interesting because it's spreading. I've done a lot of work reporting for the Jerusalem Post just because I'm intellectually curious about this, what types of interactions are, and it's very small scale stuff, are taking place between Syrians and Israelis. And of course this is creating, as one Israeli official told me from the Ministry of Health, good customers bring back more customers, and this is spreading now through southern Syria. So I think last year, Israel, correct me if I'm wrong, there was over 700, so over 700 Syrians have been treated by Israel, in Israel, provided medical care. One Syrian said, to, you know, to, because I've been talking about a clinically depressing topic all day, uh, or this evening, one, one Syrian grandfather said, who brought his um, grandchild for care in Israel said, it's in the New York Times, um, when this war ends, I'm going to put up an Israeli flag, which I thought was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. The lady asked whether or not, to what degree, the lady asked to what degree Islam, or radical Islam, was responsible for the rise in anti-Semitism. And I'd like to turn that question around because I've listened now for half an hour. Now, for 30 years I lived in Europe and did exactly what you did, but for a mainstream publication. And I'm curious to know why at no point Perhaps I missed something. You didn't mention the uh, 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 policies of the uh, of, of the Israeli government for the last ten or twelve years, or a little bit longer, in the uh, in the what I guess I would call the West Bank, and I, I originally called the West Bank when I called the covered the war in '67, and I guess you would call today in Samaria. Well, I use the phrase disputed territories. I suppose they are. Uh, in any event, it's that policy is uh, 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 with the with the current government and certainly its predecessors. It's fairly strong. Uh, I, I I haven't heard you mention it at all as a possible source of anti-Semitism. So perhaps you don't think it is um, in Europe. I, I, I might say that uh, for all the years I lived in Europe and I go back every year, there is a kind of low level of anti-Semitism that is background radiation that will never go away. My wife is a Holocaust survivor and she agrees with me. Uh, and we just expect that to stay there. The question is what happens when it rises to a higher level. I'm quite surprised, for example, in citing things, you didn't mention the remark of Ramon Bar after the uh, 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 bombing of the synagogue of Copernic. Uh, uh, several Jews were killed and several innocent Frenchmen. That's the Prime Minister of, of France talking. That level is something that will never go away. I'm now, I'm now, and, and I'm now asking what you think, uh, whether or not you think the uh, policies of the Israeli government, just 
leave it in the in the in what you call the disputed territories has any role at all? Well, at times when there's um, outbreaks like uh, the Marvi Marmara, um, Gaza is not a disputed territory. No, it is not. Um, or um, Diane said during the war, let them choke on. You know the, the studies in Europe really show there's there's a spike in in, in, in violent anti-Semitic incidents during this period, and uh, anti-Semitism rises. I do agree with you that anti-Semitism is brooding always in the background, and it's just a question of what's going to re trigger it or, or activate it. Um, I don't think that the the notion of Israel um, engaged in a territorial conflict with the PLO is uh, producing anti-Semitism. I think anti-Semitism is um, Daniel Goldhagen's book, and I can't go into it, uh, I reviewed it for the Jerusalem Post, his new book, The Devil That Never Dies, captures you know, the, the multi-layered complexity of anti-Semitism and how that's, um, you know, the, the floodgates have been opened over the centuries and, and it keeps moving forward. Um, but I, I think, you know, you know that, that type of explanation where a Green Party member um, in, during the first Gulf War in Germany for the Bundestag said, um, Christian, his last name will come to me, said that um, we don't want to provide Scud missiles or defense mechanisms for Israel. Um, and then once Hussein started lobbying Scud missiles, we don't want to provide defensive missiles, he said this is the logical, this is the German MP, this is the logical cons con consequence of Israel's policies. Um, again, what does it have to do with the settlements? You know, I don't, I don't see the connection. I mean, I think the settlement construction, um, you know, I mean, it, it is, is the, the be-all and end-all for Europeans. It's, the, it's this notion, if anything should debunk the notion right now that it's not about anti-Semitism, look at the Arab Spring or the Arab revolts or, um, you know, whatever phrase you want to use. What, when Europe was fixated on Israel for all these years, they misjudged what was happening in terms of Syria, Egypt, all these countries. Most of these authoritarian leaders, practically all, were blaming Israel for everything. The populations who revolted against Mubarak and Assad and Gaddafi, was anti-Israel, were the settlements driving that notion? Were they saying, well, Judea and Samaria should be the Palestinians? So I wasn't asking about Arab anti-Semitism. It's proven, it's existed, and it will continue to to exist from the Mufti of Jerusalem on. I was asking about anti-Semitism in continental Europe, which apparently you are a specialist on. Right, and the same thing holds for the experts in continental Europe. When they're writing essay after essay, whether it's the Stiftung for Politik and Wissenschaft in Germany, which advises the foreign, the, uh, the foreign minister, or different institutes in France, look at the number of papers devoted to the Israeli-Arab conflict, and look at other conflicts. So my point is, this intense obsession with Israel has more to do with the European psyche as opposed to um, the settlements and settlement construction. I don't, I'd like to know why the Europeans are not focused on North Cyprus and Turkey's occupation. Why is there scarcely any literature, no condemnations, no efforts to label products from North Cyprus, although Turkey occupies it, but Israel is front and center in everybody's thinking, and probably this year we'll see a resolution passed by the EU labeling Israeli products. Is, are the settlements that much of a priority and a threat to world security that they've been um, turned into the single most important issue for European foreign policy? 
You're not asking me that question. You're saying they aren't. Good questions are better than good answers. I, I, you know, it's, I, I, I don't think so. So, it's, um, I, I, again, I think the settlement issue and the construction settlements, you can, my personal opinion is I'm not wild about it. You know, it's, it's, hopefully it will be resolved in, in the bargaining process. Um, but the European reaction to somehow adhere, to, to somehow assert that we'll create a political utopia if we can just stop beaming Netanyahu from building another apartment complex in East Jerusalem or another balcony. You know, I, I just don't, I, I just find that very, I don't find that persuasive, it's not plausible, and I think it buys into the European um, distorted think processes about uh, the Middle East conflict. They should focus less on, on the disputed territories and more on building Arab democracy. That would create a solution, in my view. But again, I'm not negating the importance of the settlement construction. I think that is a barrier. Um, but, you know, that, that the party should work that out. Time for one, one more question? Sure. Okay. Um, you spoke about Western Europe. And uh, I'm curious if you would like to say a few words about one country who desperately wants to become a part of the European Union, which is Ukraine, where both uh, sides of the conflict now use the Jewish card and a very, uh, in my opinion, vicious anti-Jewish rhetoric and blame each other and their opponents <coughs> for any fault uh, they have uh, as uh, being a consequence of their um, alleged Jewish heritage or something like that. So uh, how do you see that conflict in terms of their um, anti-Jewish uh, sentiments? And uh, my second question would be, if you see the American reporting on that conflict, being different from the way it's uh, reported in Europe. Okay, where are you from? I'm from St. Petersburg, Russia. Oh, St. Petersburg, wow. Okay. You came in just for the lecture? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Too long. Um, yeah, I'm Ukraine. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've, again, I've scraped the surface on, on, on the on what's happening in terms of these competing charges of anti-Semitism. Um, I know there's been some very good reporting in the Daily Beast by Eli Lake, I mispronounced his first name, you can look that up, in terms of Putin sort of um, exploiting the anti-Semitism card to gain credibility and, and legitimacy about his intervention. Um, I, 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 I was in St. Petersburg once, um, but I know I haven't delved really into into the anti-Semitism in, in the Ukraine. I had, there, there's the one right-wing party, um, Sova, who knows the name of it? Um, they're in the parliament. What's the name? Sova. Sova. Freedom, thank you. Um, I did some reporting and interviewed some Ukrainian Jewish officials about this party and experts, and they sort of played it, played it down that it wasn't as, as serious as they thought. Um, it, it's hard to say. I mean, these, these movements in, 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 the, in Eastern Europe, Jobbik, there's a party now in, in, in um, Bulgaria called Ataka, which means attack. I was just there. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's troubling because in Bulgaria, Sofia, the streets are blanketed with these fascist-style posters of these, the leader of this party, Ataka. You know, and I would talk to the Jewish community and folks, and isn't this kind of serious? And they have their television station, they have posters blanketing the city. No, no, they're, you know, it's, it's not, it's not going to be a big deal. Um, but in the Ukraine, I, I, you know, it, it seems to me, at least what I've heard from some Jewish figures, and I've, read, I've only read this in the media, I haven't done any hard 
reporting on this is that um, Putin is, um, you know, stoking anti-Semitism as a threat to delegitimize the democratic opposition. I mean, if folks have heard anything contrary to that, I'd be curious to hear. Um, you know, Putin. You know, I don't. I don't believe Vladimir Putin is an anti-Semite. He's clearly authoritarian, anti-democratic, and very, very dangerous. Um, but he's he's manipulating things. That's really I can't say anything more. If someone can answer her question, jump in. We have um, the schedules are there for other events. Next week at Columbia University in the evening, we have Efrain Halevi who's speaking, the former Israeli ambassador to the European Union, uh, former head of Mossad, and the, uh, he's a professor at Hebrew University, so that should be very interesting. And uh, there's a whole slew of other events in New York and, and beyond. So thank you for coming. It's all on the website. Thank you very much. Thank you.